Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're heard in over 60 countries around the world. This is our 193rd show, and we're the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs, and today we're broadcasting from Los Angeles. On this program, we love entrepreneurs, people who are prepared to get off their ass, push the envelope, be creative, and make something out of absolutely nothing. It's hard to break out of the routine put it all on the line, but you get to do something you really enjoy doing and be ruler of your own destiny. Now, I've been a marketing chief marketing officer for a number of global companies and global organizations, and, you know, most people in the C-suite know that SEO is extremely important for their business, but they rely on members of the team to handle it. Quite often, the wrong members. Too many CMOs leave it to, you know, leave that internet stuff to younger staff members because it's tech, you know, and they know that stuff. But SEO is critically important to almost every aspect of your business. It is critical. I mean, many CMOs that say they would like to understand SEO better, but they don't have time to worry about digital marketing, which they don't really understand that well. They've got a million other things to do. You know, you've got a to-do list a million miles long. And, uh, you know, your email box fills up every five minutes. So you don't have time to worry about SEO. Um, So this next five minutes, five minutes is all it's going to take, is intended to give the chief marketing officer the understanding and the vocabulary to ask the right questions of their teams when it comes to search engine optimization. Now, while they rely on their team to handle SEO, most CMOs have got to want to understand it better. So if they're not taking care of the um, SEO, and the CEO comes and says, Mr. CMO, come in, explain to me what's happening with um, with digital marketing, and uh, you've got to sit there and look like you're half intelligent. So your team gives you metrics that, um, that seems to show progress, but you know in the back of your mind that rankings, visitors, and traffic, which is probably what you're going to be fed... It's not what the CEO wants. That's like the old days of measuring tops and rank and rankings. Remember that? And ratings. The television program's rating 53, so therefore it's a great investment. Well, that all sounds good, but it doesn't matter a damn. The only important measure is what we're selling and what it's doing to your brand equity. That's it. So instead of tracking rankings, the CEO wants to know, How many leads are we getting? How many of those leads are we converting to sales? 
And uh, most CMOs think that SEO is rocket science and nerdsville. And to learn the basics of it, they'll need to be locked in a room for a week with a bunch of geeks. And firstly, they don't want to do that. And secondly, they simply don't have that much time. So here's the five-minute version of what a CMO needs to know about SEO. So let's begin with the basics of SEO. Firstly, rankings are old school. The old way of doing SEO was to do everything possible to rank for a small handful of golden keywords that would generate massive amounts of traffic. For example, a software as a service company with a project management tool would try to become number one for project management and number one for project management software. So every month they and their SEO firm would run through a report to see where they ranked for these and probably a few other keywords. And if the rankings were up, hey, we're successful. If they were down, you guys had better get this SEO up quickly. We've got to get these rankings up and fast. Now, some rankings should be tracked, but instead of focusing on rankings as a primary metric, focus on the metrics that really matter, leads and sales. This means adopting a more holistic view of SEO that overlaps with the other forms of digital marketing, such as content marketing, social media marketing, um, and conversion rate optimization. They're the things that need to be tied in. You've also got to accept that SEO requires a long-term effort. It's not, just not going to happen overnight. So if your company's in trouble and needs marketing to boost sales and leads right now, well, SEO's not going to get it. I'm not going to do it. SEO is like a big, heavy freight train. It takes a huge amount of effort to get it going, but once it's going, it's going. But if you need fast results, you've got to go to paid search, digital PR, content. You know how long does it take for SEO to work? Well, you might see some results in four months, but for substantial results, you're looking up to a year. So... If you need results now, ain't going to cut it. The third thing to understand is that the best links are earned and not built. You know you know that Google and the other search engines will boost the rankings of a website if it's got lots of links pointing to it. That's true. But what's changed is that the links need to be the right kind of links. The best links come from websites where it's not easy to get links, like those major news outlets or reputable bloggers. These links are earned by creating content that's worth linking to. That means you've got to create great content, content so good that you would pay for it if you had to get it good and very good ain't good enough anymore. And not every link is a positive. Bad links will hurt your SEO. So make sure that your team is regularly regularly <laughs> reviewing reports from Google Webmaster Tools to see which sites are linking to yours. When you find bad links pointing to your site, you've got to disavow them 
and file a reconsideration request. The next thing you need to remember is that SEO is to a large extent content marketing. So do you want to target long tail keywords? Then you need to create content to focus on those keywords. Do you want great inbound links? Then you need to create great contact that will attract great links. Technical SEO is still critical, but the long-term work involved in SEO is primarily content marketing. If your team doesn't have a plan for generating high-quality content, then they don't have an SEO plan. An important question that comes up all the time people ask me a lot is, should I outsource my SEO or should I do it in-house? Now, the bottom line is that unless you have a budget of $300,000 a year to dedicate to building an in-house SEO team, go hire an agency. You heard me, $300,000 to put together an in-house SEO team. Just one good person when it comes to SEO is going to cost you at least $150,000 a year, probably more. So if you're going out and hire somebody for seventy-five grand, they are going to be ratchet and your results are going to be hopeless. So you're better off spending $75,000 a year on an SEO agency than you are trying to do it yourself for the same amount of money. It is not going to work. Now, to get anyone to know about your great content, no use having a stack of great content if nobody can find it. So you need social amplification to get it out there so people can find it. So you need to spread that content through your social media channels and encourage partners and customers to do the same. This type of amplification sends social signals to the search engines, but more importantly, gets your content in front of more people. And hopefully some of these people are going to be bloggers and journalists and they're the people that will help you get high quality links back to your website. Okay, if you're the CMO, you want to know what the costs are. Well, we just touched on that, but in SEO, everything is custom made and everyone has a different understanding of the work involved in delivering your objectives. So if you ask three firms for pricing, to help you grow your business by 20%, say during the next six months, one firm might focus its attention on technical SEO, another one will focus on content marketing, and another one will emphasize social media. So you end up with totally different prices, which you can't compare for because they're tackling three different things. Sorting through it all is a pain in the ass, but generally speaking, um, Full-service SEO, if you're using an outside agency, will cost you somewhere from five, six, seven thousand, eight thousand dollars a month, up to ten, twenty thousand dollars a month, depending on what you need. And the last thing to remember is that SEO continues to evolve. Um, for example, Google now recognizes mobile-friendly websites and, is, and the time spent on mobile devices exceeds that spent on desktops. So some companies are adopting a mobile-first strategy 
which makes a lot of sense to me. So if you don't have a website that takes advantage of responsive design to shift to match any browser size or shape, then you have to get one. If you don't, you'll lose. And your tweets are also indexed. So more tweets now show up in Google search results. So being active on Twitter is now more important than ever. And CRO is SEO. Conversion rate optimization, which is CRO, is now an integral part of SEO. If SEO is how you get traffic to your website through organic search results, CRO is how you turn that traffic into customers. An SEO strategy, if you haven't got a CRO strategy, is like having a retail store and never opening the doors. So CMOs need to focus not only just on generating traffic, but turning that traffic into the metrics that go along with growth. Now, 68% of organizations now have a separate digital marketing budget, and that usually represents about 25% of their total marketing budget. And 69% of senior marketers are currently allocating their digital marketing funds to website content. And 53% are spending part of their budget on social media community growth and engagement. So SEO is not just an adjunct to traditional marketing, but it's an integral part of forward-thinking CMO strategy. Now, don't forget, If you're a company director or a manager or an executive, you should join the American Institute for Sales, Marketing and Management, a great organization, fantastic resources, and it's got one common goal, and that's to raise the standard and proficiency of both individuals and companies within the business, sales, marketing and management disciplines. So don't forget, go to AISMM.US and join up today. After the break, I have a chat with my friend Mark Golston from the Golston Group. He's a uh, former FBI negotiator, very cool guy. He teaches founders, CEOs and innovators to think like Steve Jobs. He helps you create a gotta-have-it attitude with your customers and that almost immediately crosses over to I'm going to buy it mindset. That means that you never again have to sell. All you got to do is take orders. Mark Goldston is brilliant, and every big guy around uses him. I'm Bob Pritchard. This is Voice America Business Channel, and I'll be back with Mark after this short break. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. 
Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore. Or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is the part of the show where we talk to successful and very often really extraordinary people. People that have enjoyed great success and are out there making a difference. I'm always amazed how many talented people there are in this world. And uh, interestingly, my guest today is also a fellow member of METAL, which is Media Entertainment Technology Alpha Leaders, which are 1,600 of the smartest people on the planet. And uh, we meet every Saturday, and every Saturday I walk out of there just absolutely flabbergasted by the quality of people that... um, that belong. Last Saturday we had uh, the CEO of the Hyperloop project. We had um, uh, a lady who started a um, a health food bar company, and now it's three hundred million dollar industry. We had a fellow who's an expert on big data and analysis. It is just extraordinary. So um, I like to talk to them, and the aim when I'm talking to them is to find out. What are the characteristics that they have that makes them great? And how can each of us learn from what um, they've got to offer and from the mistakes that they might have made in the past? My friend Mark Goldston from the Goldston Group, as I mentioned, is a fellow metal member. Well, he helps companies and organisations create a I've got to have it response to their products and services and he does this by teaching founders and CEOs and innovators to think like Steve Jobs. Now that sounds like a big call and I'll talk to him about that but when you've got a when you create this I've got to have it attitude people immediately say I've got to have it therefore I'm going to buy it. So therefore you never have to sell people stuff because they want to buy it. You just sit there and make sure you've got a pen with plenty of ink in it and take orders on a personal level Mark's been a people hacker I love that term people hacker for more than 30 years originally hacking into the psyche of suicide patients to help them discover a reason and a desire to live now that sounds like a pretty tough chore then he hacked into the psyche of hostage takers so that they turn themselves peacefully over to the FBI and police. That all sounds sounds like a pretty tough gig. And CEOs and founders with the logical extensions to that. And Mark helps them achieve, maximise their success and their effectiveness. Being an entrepreneur and a visionary is tough. And uh, we often need to reignite that visionary engine because sometimes it stalls when you're trying to run a company in an organisation, it just becomes so overwhelming. I must admit, my schedule is just frenetic. And 
sometimes you sit there and think, Jesus, I just can't cope, keep up, and all the change that's happening in the world, it gets bloody hard. So Mark works with um, high integrity, motivated, committed, and failure is not an option, executives, and uh, to overcome obstacles to achieve their mission. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network. Hi, Bob. I can hardly wait to find out what I say. Yeah, I'm, I'm really fascinated. You're obviously very good at smooth-talking people. You must have been great on first dates when you picked up a girl in the bar. They were gone, right? You really had that licked. Well, you know, you're, you're a more recent uh, uh, example of that. I haven't had a first date for 37 years. Okay. <laughs> now, you started off as a clinical psychiatrist. Um, how did you transition to training FBI and police hostage negotiators? I mean, that's a you know that 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 seems to me like an extremely specialised field and one that has a lot of risks involved and a hell of a lot of stress. Well, I started out as a suicide interventionist and helping people also. Uh, find a different way than violence and so I dealt with uh, very disturbed and disturbing kinds of people and uh, what happened is uh, I, I, I used to work with suicidal patients who were still suicidal when they were discharged from a hospital so one of my first well, mentors wait, wait, actually wait, wait, wait. why would they be discharged from a hospital if they're still suicidal well, because there's some people who are acutely suicidal, and there are some people who have kind of a suicidal personality, meaning it's, they're not going to act on it today or maybe this week, but there's a darkness to them. And what would happen is when they need to do you can't keep them in forever, and you don't change someone's yeah. personality in a short hospitalization. So my first mentor, a fellow named Dr. Edward Schneiden, and he, he actually was a pioneer in the study and intervention with suicidal people, and he would go up to the inpatient wards at UCLA, and he'd do a consultation with these people who were still suicidal but needed to be discharged because, again, it wasn't acute. It was just part of them. And some of the residents didn't want to see these people as outpatients because they were still fairly scary. So he would go meet with them, and then he'd call me on the phone, and he would always say the same thing. And he would say, Mark, I'm with this handsome young man, or Mark, I'm with this lovely young woman. They're in a lot of pain, Mark. You could help them, see them, and then you put them on the phone, and I'd see them. And so early on in my career, you're only supposed to see one or two suicidal patients at a time. Early on in my career, about 25% of them were suicidal, right. and knock on wood, none of them killed themselves uh, after I saw them. And uh, my wife will tell you that for 10 years, I never got to the end of the movie we were watching because I'd be beeped or interrupted. Yeah. And so what happened, though, is I, I, I became very innovative because I felt, well, the usual approaches stabilized them but never got through to them. And so that gave me permission, as well as the confidence my mentor had in me, to actually listen more and more deeply into them. And when I did that, what happened is I crossed over into their world emotionally, meaning there were a few patients that I would see and I would start to feel a dark, cold chill. And initially it startled me and with one patient I thought, geez, I'm having a stroke or a seizure. And then I did a neurologic exam on myself because I'm a medical doctor, psychiatrist. 
and I realized that I was all there. And then I thought, I think I'm feeling and going and seeing the world through her eyes. Yeah. And when I felt it, I was kind of young and innovative and game to try something, and I kept leaning into it. And a friend of mine who I shared the story with, uh, who's the main uh, pastor at St. John the Divine in Manhattan, he said, you went into the dark night of the soul. And what happened, mm. i got to tell you about, it was awful. It was chilling, it was cold. And I had this realization that, boy, if that was me, I would have killed myself a year ago. Yeah. Is and this, so is, I actually shared that with some patients because on one, one occasion I was sleep deprived and I said that and I thought, my God, I just gave her permission. At that point, she smiled at me and she said, thank you for understanding. Thank you, yeah. thank you for feeling it with me. And then she gave up her suicidality after having made three attempts in the previous four years. Is that is that a different... Is that a different type of feeling than, you know, people who, not often, but I come across people from time to time who just say, you know, this is all too much for me. It's all changing too quickly. I can't cope. I, I always feel inadequate. I always feel like I'm under pressure. What's the use of being here? You know, that's a different type of thing than somebody who's dead set, um, Set on killing himself. Well, well, well here's, here's the difference. There's a, there's a continuum in how you listen to people. At the poorest end, uh, you're not. You think you're listening, but you're not listening at all. You're presuming to know someone when you really don't. And then, and then, not much better than that is actually figuring someone out, uh, which makes them feel like you're treating them as an object. Mm. Uh, that's why a lot of entrepreneurs have troubled marriages because they're very good at figuring things out but that's often frustrating to their spouses who want you to not just understand how they feel but feel their feelings with them and so so uh, slightly better than figuring someone out is when you when they feel understood by you but what I've learned is when people feel felt by you they open up to you. So, for instance, if I was listening into you, Bob, uh, what I'm picking up is that it's very important for you to keep the people you interview kind of on track. So, good luck with me, and also that they're that they're continuing to give value to your listeners, and if possible exceeding your listeners' expectations of value. Because if you can bring on guests like that, who while your audiences consistently, it's going to elevate uh, the value of your show. Is any of that true? That's, that's all totally true. Oh, and so to a certain extent, I mean, I, I, you know, over a drink, I'll get into you even more deeply, but, um, but it, there's a way of listening into people that when you really get them, so I got you, you know, probably on slightly more than a pedestrian level right there and then, mm. but can you feel that if I got that accurately, You'd be more you'd be more willing to lean into the conversation to find out where it went. Yeah, you you would. I, I think I learned a long time ago that people, um, most people, listen to the words you're saying, but they don't actually hear what you're saying. They listen to the words, they understand the words, but they don't understand what you're saying. And I think that's yeah. you know we, we've, for the for the most intelligent species on the planet, supposedly we are all absolutely appalling communicators, aren't we? Well, absolutely. And one of my favorite 
quote, which I think you like, comes from a, a, a psychoanalyst of the last century, Wilfred Bion from Britain. And what he said is, the purest form of communication is to listen without memory or desire. And what he meant by that is when you listen to someone with memory, you have an old personal agenda that you're trying to plug them into. And when you listen to them with desire, you have a future personal agenda that you're trying to plug them into. But in either case, are you listening to them? And so in my trainings and teaching, what I suggest to people is try to cultivate being a PAL. And PAL stands for P-A-L, Purposeful Agendaless Listening purposeful, agendaless listening. And the purpose is to listen in really, really deeply to cause people to reveal their greatest hopes and dreams and their greatest uh, fears and uh, frustrations. And when you can listen into that, people just, they just, they dive into that conversation Yeah. because it, it's, it, they, they don't feel figured out or understood, they just feel really felt. How, how practical is that for a business person or an entrepreneur? I mean, I, we're all under so much we're all under so much pressure these days that um, you know when you go and meet somebody that you're trying to do business with, you're not trying to understand them. You're trying to sell them shit, right? And when you um, um, with staff. Um, you really don't have time. You know, I'm one of those people who believes the only way to change people is to change people. So, staff, does a business person really have time to get into the depth of the soul and the beliefs of, of no, people? No, no, no. But, but, but in certain select cases, uh, so it's interesting. Um, what I've discovered from entrepreneurs is they can't stand to listen deeply into people. They just want results. And in fact, if yeah. uh, uh, most decision makers hate people problems. And I've spoken to a number of entrepreneurs that say, when I was a manager, I had to deal with people issues. But now that I'm the leader and, hope, and supposedly the visionary, uh, when I get really clear on the vision and the strategy and the opportunity, I want to hear about people's stuff and that's why I have someone in HR, that's why I have a COO, because I, I, and I'm not trying to be rude, it's just that I don't want to let go of the clarity. So I think one of the things that made Steve Jobs very difficult is he had incredible clarity about an opportunity, and the clarity and the opportunity was he looked out into the world and he said, you know, computers are ugly, complicated, and unreliable. If I could... If I could design something that was beautiful, simple, and reliable, I think I would, I think I would own the world of technology. Yep. And so he didn't know how to build it, but he could recognize it when he saw it. That's when I kicked off the on-off switch on the iPad. And so I think what happened is when he was able to see things that clearly, he didn't want anything getting in the way of it. And and it's interesting, since I've discovered, you know, I, I've been creating this talk called Gotta Have It, since I discovered the formula that he followed, I'm becoming less patient with people also because I, for myself, I've discovered an incredible opportunity that I want to seize, and the opportunity is helping entrepreneurs to create Gotta Have It in their customers and clients and they're loving it. I'm getting between 4.8 and 5.0 out of 5 ratings from entrepreneurial groups, and I've never gotten that before. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, you take somebody like Steve Jobs out of unbelievable clarity and great vision on, on products and really understood on one one hand he understood what people wanted and what they'd buy and what they'd gravitate to um, and what would wow them on the other on the other side as a people person he was an asshole um it, you know and you you look at somebody like Elon Musk and and you know everybody has spouse problems I guess but Elon Musk says Elon Musk's wife says Elon's a unbelievable visionary and unbelievably clever and whatever but a lousy husband and even worse father so do, do that it is it possible to be both i mean is it possible to have such clarity of vision and clarity of mind that you can be um um a steve jobs well, it, and still it, it, be a reasonable a person <laughs> it's a challenge a good friend of mine named Vern harnish and he started this international coaching organization called gazelles and he lives uh, over in spain and he said he said you know there's a there's kind of a urban story uh, urban legend but it's probably true that uh, there's a there's a bar in dublin ireland that's right in the heart of the technology area and and he said the happiest people in the bar are the ex-wives of entrepreneurs. And they're having a good old time with their girlfriends. <laughs> They've got money to burn. Yeah, and he said, that's the reason. And, the most, and he said the most miserable people in the, in the uh, bar are, are the entrepreneurs who have just, uh, you know, they've just got a trophy wife, and after eight months, they're bored. Yeah, I think and, uh, yeah, I think that's I yeah. think that's absolutely true. Um, where I live, um, near me, there's um, a place called Calabasas, which is full of people that are very rich. And uh, if you go up to Starbucks, I used to drop my son off to school, and uh, then go to Starbucks in Calabasas, and it's full of full of women about thirty to. 50 that are absolutely loaded with money with lovely cars having a wonderful time and um you know their husbands are out working a thousand hours a thousand hours a week with a 16 year old wife and are miserable <laughs> it's got oh, to yeah, be yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you asked an interesting question i spoke to a metal member and he came up to me and he said uh and i want to identify him he said you know i have an early stage company that is just taking off and i'm getting investors but I also have a fiancé who's pregnant. Now, we're going to get married, and my fiancé wants my attention. And the, and the point is, uh, I can't give it to her because, you know, I'm, I'm really uh, getting traction with my company. And so my advice to him is I said, well, I said, think of the most difficult investor you have, but you need their money. But they are difficult. I mean, if you didn't need their money, you'd want to shoot them or shoot yourself. <laughs> but you're going to work around it because you need their money at this, yeah. you know, for your company. And I said, you're going to find a way to work around their personality because you need their money and that is necessary for the future of your business, correct? And he said, yes. I said, well, if you keep doing what you're going to do with your wife and your yet unborn child, you're not even married, uh, if you keep doing that, that's going to screw up the future of your marriage. Now, that's okay if, if you don't mind being a statistics, but that's kind of sad given the fact that you haven't even had children and you have one in the oven already mm. and so I said I think an approach to take is look at your wife like your most difficult investor <laughs> you know, otherwise uh, otherwise it's going to kill your future either way you know blow would, you know, uh, in a, in a lot of the investor you don't get the money uh, uh, keep 
annoying your wife in this way and blowing her off. You don't get the marriage, so it's up to you. And you lose the money. Um, there you go. Yeah, so your book, uh, Just Listen, became the top book on listening in the world. And uh, I guess your background as a trainer of FBI and police hostage negotiators helps entrepreneurs to understand um, and get this clarity. But, you know, they're not very good listeners. And you talk about holding them hostage. Um, who's holding them hostage? What holds an entrepreneur hostage? Well, sometimes the people issues hold them hostage because they don't want to deal with them and they're not big enough yet to get someone to intercede with some of their difficult people. But I think what also holds them hostage is is not understanding the person they're talking upstream to. So one of the things that I have told a number of entrepreneurs who speak faster than I think, I, I said, here's what you have to keep in mind. When you uh, speak so quickly, you may be a quick and deep study, but what you're doing with investors is you're triggering flashbacks with people who are quick talking and just quick talking and who screwed these uh, investors. Yeah. And what you have to realize is these investors, every time they, they bought into something that didn't work out, they said to themselves, never again am I going to throw money down something uh, right. uh, that sounded so great. And so what I've told them is you need to learn how to deliberate more when they ask you a question. And I've coached them. I say, when someone asks you a question, even if you have the answer, discipline yourself to pause and maybe say, hmm, because that will cause the person who wants to know that their concern got into your consideration, that will cause them to feel that you actually considered it. Whereas if you're so quick and you're talking so fast, they may start to smile inside what they're saying to themselves unconsciously, another one, another quick talking know-it-all who's master of the universe. You know, let someone else invest with this, uh, uh, this person. I'm not going to do it. So can you see how listening in to people and understanding them at that level could be much more effective than just, because you wouldn't rush an investor where you need the money. That all sounds that all sounds very pragmatic. Um, I'm one of those people who believes that every decision we make is made emotionally. Um, you know, we we make the we make the decision emotionally. It doesn't matter what it is. It can be a business decision. It can be um, a personal decision. It could be burying a grandmother. You know, it's about making an emotional making the decision, making it emotionally, and then you justify it pragmatically. Is your approach your, your approach seems much more um, about understanding and getting a, a real clarification on who people are and what makes them work. Well, also, it's about it's exactly that. It's uh, in fact one of the things that I, uh, I, I have a number of blogs uh, having to do with how do you get through to people, how do you get through to busy people, how do you get through to. Uh, decision makers, and so I'll throw a couple things at you, and they're practical, but I think they're good ways to frame your communication. So I wrote a blog, uh, I think it was called B2B Ninja Training, it's on LinkedIn, and it's uh, how to get through to busy decision makers, and uh, I'm big with formulas, I have the Steve Jobs formula, maybe we'll do that on another show, but the formula there is when you're dealing with a busy decision maker, be clear, be concise, 
be relevant, be gone. Because when you're not clear, they go, oh, here we go again. If you're not concise, they're, they're saying, yep. get to it already. Yep. If, if you're clear and concise, but it's not relevant, they think, you didn't do your homework. And, yep. then, uh, and if they just linger, what happens is you start to avoid them. Because they're just sort of a pain. So can you? So what I suggest in that blog is every time you're talking to a decision maker or you're talking upstream in, uh, to a, a manager or leader above you, ask yourself, rate yourself after the conversation on a scale of one to ten, how clear, concise, relevant, and uh, and gone was I from the other person's eyes. So I think if you learn to. <clears throat> discipline yourself to hold yourself accountable, uh, it's going to uh, make you better. And then and say to yourself, what would I do to improve uh, the rating in their eyes? So in your mind, what you're trying to do is figure out how did I come off uh, with them. Uh, there's another blog uh, I wrote that I gave to the Institute of Management Consultants called How to Turn a Conversation into Getting Hired. And there's many things in that, and there's many things in all the trainings that I offer. But one of the things I mentioned there is uh, when someone asks you a question, let's say you're, you're a consultant, and the person asks you a question after you've spoken, uh, when I spend the training, what do you do? And what the consultant says is, well, I try and give them an answer. And I said to them, uh, uh, the first time they ask you a question after you've spoken, never answer the question. Because what you're doing is you're, 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 you're at the pedestrian level of other consultants. Right. What you really want to do, is, and this is what I said in the uh, How to Turn a Conversation to Getting Hired, is you want to be mindful, again, disciplining yourself, uh, when they use adjectives or adverbs. Because an adjective is a way of embellishing a noun, and an adverb is a way of embellishing a verb. And so even if they ask you a question like, so what do you think we should do, blah, 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 blah. If they previously said awful, terrific, if only, horrendous, uh, you can say, before I answer that question, say more about the horrendous. And what will happen is they will go deeper. And as they go deeper, they're more invested in the conversation. Can you, yep. can you see that and feel that yep. in your mind's eye? Yep, I get and then that. You keep, you keep doing that, and then what you want to do is... They still, still might say, uh, you know, ask your question. And, and the final tip that I give in that blog is say to them, you know, I can answer your question, but I'd like to take our conversation to the ICU. And they're going to say, what? And I say, ICU stands for important, critical, and urgent. And I can tell you what I think was most important, critical, and urgent from our conversation, but rather than my guessing, what do you think was most important, critical, and urgent? And if we didn't cover it, especially the critical and urgent, what should we have covered? So can you see that you're, you're, you're helping people <clears throat> get stuff out when you go into their adverb or, uh, uh, or adjective? You're going deeper into them than another uh, consultant. And then after that, after you've given this great high colonic, you get them to focus and prioritize in terms of important, critical, and urgent, and can you see that that would be a much more potent conversation from their point of view than what they used to hear? Yeah, I see that. So, so what what role do you see emotion playing in in communication? I, I I believe that if you want to sell somebody something, you have to 
a transference of energy takes place, a transference from you to the person that you're trying to sell. And if you're effective in communication, communicating that emotion, then you'll get the sale. Are you, do, well, you, don't, think, well, you don't think, adhere to well, that I philosophy? The, I think the more people... Uh, I go for high clients, so I go for the billionaires. Yep. And I can tell you, <clears throat> the billionaires are more thoughtful than emotional. Now, and so the point is, when you're kind of green and you're new and you're selling and you're selling to people who are at sort of a lower level, yeah, go with the emotion. But really what you want to do is you, you, you want to get them to reveal themselves. So the, another tip that I give is if you find that being persuasive with emotion isn't working, if you find that they're kind of smiling and nodding from the neck up, but you get a feeling that you're giving them the ewee-jeewees and they want to get away from you, one of the things that I, again, that I suggest is uh, focus a little bit on them. And in those cases, we're getting emotional and being persuasive isn't working. I mean, if it's working, go for it. Be, be emotional. But if it's not working, if they're not voting with the, below the neck to buy from you, what you want to trigger is what I call SDU, and SDU stands for self-discovered urgency. So what can you talk about in the conversation that causes them to discover on their own an urgency to solve something that you're the solution to? Yeah. And, and, you, and you do this when you see that your emotion isn't working. As I said, if emotion works and it triggers emotion, that's fine, but that's really your lower rung of consumers. They're not all that discerning. And so okay. you, know, you flood them with emotion, you get them excited. But if you really want to go for big ticket people, you know, they're, uh, uh, they're not impressed by the selling. In fact, the harder you sell, the more oh, desperate you sell. I agree. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a seller like that. So we're, we're just about out of time, but what are the greatest challenges that entrepreneurs face and, and how do you help them overcome it? Well, I, I think the greatest problem, and I see it over and over again, is, is really not considering people issues. There's a, there's a saying, you hire people for what they know and do, but you fire them for who they are. And so a lot of times, entrepreneurs, in order to fill a slot, will bring in people who are horrendous in a number of ways. And by the way, a lot of entrepreneurs are conflict avoidant when it comes to anything emotional sure. or personality issues. Sure. And so they avoid it. And what happens, it gets worse. You're going to have to replace that person because they didn't do the job. And so, uh, and, and any time an entrepreneur fires someone, if you ask them their main regret, you know what it is, that I didn't do it sooner. Yeah. And so I think what's really key is uh, don't get ahead of yourself and minimize uh, the importance of getting the right people on the bus doing the right things because it'll kill your company. I agree. Mark, thanks very much for joining me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. I really do appreciate it. Now, if you'd like to find out more about Mark Goldston, go to markgolston.com. That's M-A-R-K-G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N.com. And uh, I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show right after this short break. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network
You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel, the number one business radio show globally for entrepreneurs. And today we're broadcasting from beautiful Los Angeles. Gorgeous day today. Absolutely pure blue sky. It is fabulous. American companies, well, some American companies, appoint one woman to a board of directors and consider it representative and diversified. They claim that they're progressive. What a cop-out that is. When you're the only woman or the only minority on a board, you're really just a token or representing the women's or the minority's point of view through one voice. And you notice for your gender and your ethnicity rather than your contribution to the company. It is really embarrassing that only 37, 37 of NASDAQ's top 100 companies, including Tesla, Priceline, Comcast, all companies that you think would be a little bit progressive, have just one woman on the board. Eight companies in NASDAQ have no women at all. And not one single company has a board that's got 50% women. That is bloody atrocious. And when you look at unicorns, you know, they're, they're um, private companies with a valuation of at least $1 billion. People like Uber and Snapchat and Airbnb, who are all slip, slick hip, cool, groovy companies, not one of them has a board of more than one woman. Not one. So don't these companies realise that the board should reflect the full range of talent and the customer base that they're selling to? I mean, if you're a truck driving company, you'd still have one woman on the board. You know, but if you're, if you're a general consumer company... 50% of your people on the board should be women. 54% of the population and people that are buying are women. And having one woman on the board is akin to having none, really. You should have at least three women on the board. Give, give it a bit of critical mass and so that their talent's seen as much more important than their gender. They, you know, we are a long way from the point where it's even reasonable Overall, the percentage of women in the boardroom is ridiculous. Only 19% of directors at Standard & Poor's 500 companies, that's the S&P 500, 19% are women. So we should have three times more women on boards than we have now. And you'd think that the metrosexual liberals in Silicon Valley would set the trend, but they're actually worse than the boring old conservative Wall Street farts. Come on, corporate America, get a grip. Stop wasting some of our most precious talent. You know, revise your board policies and revise them now. Now, there are three ways to get rich. Actually, there's four, but the last one doesn't apply to 99% of us. Now, we all get emails every day promising us the new way to get rich, but when you cut through all the crap, the ways you can become wealthy all come down to three basic principles. The first is getting a job. Go out, get a job, 
get an education, get a job, and then work your ass off for 40 years. And if you do that, you might get enough money to retire. Now, if you get a really great job, have salary and benefits, and you save and invest, and you're a bit lucky, you can create a little bit of wealth, but your return's going to be pretty small. So when compared to the two options I'm about to mention to generate wealth, having a job is your absolutely last resort. Now, the second option requires entrepreneurial spirit, and you can achieve the American dream. Initially, you work hard for little return, just like in a job, but as the companies grow and employees get hired and you begin to trade your employees' time for money, your business grows. In a job, you're limited to the finite amount of time that you have available personally. But as a business owner, you now have the ability to expand your potential return across all the people that you might have working for you. But many people look at this as being too risky and they think they're safe in a job. You might be safe in a job, but what happens if things go bad? What happens if the boss hates your guts? What happens if the economy goes south? What happens if, a, if your biggest client leaves? <clears throat> You're out of a job. Now go and try, and try and find another one. There's no security in having a job anymore. So you're better off being an entrepreneur. Now, if you're considering starting your own business, go out, find out how much your employee, the employer, your boss, charges for your services. Now, if they hire you out at 250 bucks an hour, then work out how many clients you'd have to have paying you directly to earn the same amount of money. You know, for most people, it's only about two to five clients. You get two to five clients working for you rather than working for the company, you're going to make the same amount of money. So then once you've got five, you get 10. Now it's just a matter of having the guts to go out and get them. The third option is to create technology that builds, you know, you build a product or service that doesn't directly require your time, but people will still buy it. Initially, again, it's like a job while you build it and you develop the software or you develop the product and you hire the engineers and you create the marketing. You're still working your ass off for very little money. But eventually, you have something that generates wealth while you're asleep. You go to sleep, you're worth a dollar, you wake up in the morning, you're worth $2. How cool is that? So people are still buying the product, but the return is exponentially greater than the income based on the number of employees you have, as would be the case in a service-type business. And this is why, you know, some of these companies have got 10 times to 100 times valuations, because they don't have to physically be working on it. So if your goal is to become wealthy, then this is the option that you should focus on. Now, the fourth option, of course, that I sort of just touched on is um, to be born wealthy. <laughs> but that only happens to a few of us. So what's the lesson from all this? Well, it's encourage you to take a leap of faith and be an entrepreneur. If you've got a great idea or can provide a great service or just want to create a better life for your family, then it's time to take, take action. Get off your ass. Get out there. Take action. Work hard. Create wealth. Enjoy life. Now, I was going out the other night. I had a fantastic blue jacket, but I had no shoes that really went with it that well. So now you can open an app on your smartphone 
and add whatever colour you want to your shoes or your jacket. In theory, there are lots of clever applications for smart clothes, but you'll be able to take a selfie of your jacket and your shoes will automatically change colour to match. How cool is that? I love it. Um, people are bringing out running shoes where your sneakers glow different colours depending on whether or not you're on pace. So if you're on pace, your shoes are green. You look down, your shoes turn red, you're slipping behind the slipping behind the clock. Now that's got to be cool. And uh, cycling packs where your shoes change colour and your clothes change colour at night so that um, people won't run you over. All, these things are all great. So you won't see them on the shelves just yet, but they are on their way. Now, there's a dress watch app that uh, where you take a photograph of your clothes with your with your um, phone and your uh, smartwatch face changes colour to match your clothes. <laughs> I love this shit. I reckon it's cool. You're listening to Bob Pritchard Radio Show Worldwide and Voice America Business. We're here to assist you to become entrepreneurs and to be successful. So if you've got a question about any aspect of business, please don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com. We'll answer you on air or we'll email you directly. Make sure you subscribe to my monthly newsletter and the radio show summary sent out every week. Um, make sure you get the edition next week. Subscribe by simply going on to bobpritchard.com. And enrol. We're avid users of LinkedIn, so become a contact on LinkedIn or on Twitter or Facebook. We'd love to keep in touch with you. And I've just been appointed the honorary president of the American Institute for Sales Marketing Management. It's the premier body for anybody who really wants to get ahead in business. <coughs> so go to AISMM.us, join up today. It is a great organization. Lots of reference materials, lots of benefits, lots of contacts, lots of networking. So make sure you um, go AISMM.us. And thank you for joining us on today's show. We look forward to having you with us again next week for our 194th show. We're counting down to show 200. I don't know what we're going to do that's spectacular. Maybe you won't do anything and I'll just sit here and have a glass of champagne. That sounds like a good idea. In the meanwhile, remember that if you're not really pushing the envelope, if you're not standing on the edge, you are taking up way too much space. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. This is Bob Pritchard, and I look forward to your company again next week on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.